In September of 1917, on a steamer crossing the Atlantic, an impoverished 15-year-old deckhand jumps ship in New York City to find work on its infamous docks. He soon learns that the land of opportunity is also the land of brutal violence. Seized by a war between the Irish and Italian gangs, the New York docks are populated with ruthless cutthroats who carry bailing hooks in their belts and won't hesitate to sink them into the faces of their enemy. The young man with a bullish body and a thirst for blood learns quickly, and at the age of 17, he awaits execution on death row. Sentenced to the electric chair, which should have been the quick end to an unfortunate life, was only the beginning for a man who would earn the title of Lord High Executioner in the notorious killing organization known as Murder Incorporated. Striking terror into even the most ruthless gangster, he will ultimately be responsible for the killing of over 1,000 men. This is the legend of Albert Anastasia. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster Harris Time feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and sample police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This here, what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing, this is my doom, 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 doom. How many people do you have to kill before you're technically a killer? We, uh, we all said it's definitely not one. I, I, yeah, it's not one. I think everybody knows that because shit happens in your life. And yeah. you know, it's, that's, that could be a turn of events, an unpleasant yeah. eventuality, and somebody got killed. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the mob, you killed one guy. Are you necessarily a killer? I don't think so. Like, you kill somebody in self-defense. Yeah, because I think reasoning matters because you think about, like, armies and wars and stuff. Like, I don't think you would identify them, maybe, as killers, even though they've probably been out there doing stuff like that. I think the intention has a lot of weight behind it, too. Yeah, you're sitting around a table, all of a sudden one of them pulls a gun and you kill him, right? But what if you killed three people at that table? It's technically one kill, in my opinion. Okay, even if like say you're going to a hit on somebody, so you're committed, I'm gonna kill this guy, mm -hmm. but then two guys come out of the bathroom. Mm -hmm. yeah. Don't you have to kill them too? Yeah. And it's yeah. technically one kill, you know, because it's the same <laughs> yeah. thing. And Collateral. I, I don't know why they came out of the bathroom, it's not my business, <laughs> you know, but I just think there's uh, nuances to this. Yeah. Anastasia, 1000. Indirectly responsible, at that least. Him as a yeah, he's, he's he definitely in. Yeah, and uh, Galani last week, eighty. So these yeah. guys are in, but this it just got to be thinking about like, gee, what what is it? Is it, is it three? Is it four? Yeah. You know, but I think we all agree it's not one. <laughs> okay, this is Partners in Crime. I'm Bill Crooks, just standing on the corner, minding my own business. Down the street, I can make out the shady silhouette of our narrator, Zach the Zip Griffith. And hiding in the back alley selling fake Rolex watches, we might find the cinematic psychopath Brett Sexton. And as always, monitoring the control board, the boy genius, Joshua the Intern. Love you. Love you very much. You're welcome. So I'm watching Netflix, like I always do, because I have no life. And <laughs> they have a new series on called Fear City. And of course, I see the word gangster and I home in on it. And what they're doing is they're talking about the 70s, and we were saying how their lives of the uh, police aren't as romantic. And I kind of back that up. They're not, but they are dangerous, you know. But the documentary is basically a bunch of cops, like, uh, talking about how they were sitting in the car, you know, staking out the guys and stuff, and how they brought down the commission with uh, the RICO Act and mm -hmm. Giuliani and all that. So that's the premise. But in the last one, I th think 
they're talking about how they've got him for all these concrete contracts, and they find out that they're basically running the concrete business in any job over $2 million, and the, and the feds are just blown away, and they're going to try to get the commission down on Rico, but they want to tie him to a murder, right? And they can't, it's 1984. They don't have that, right? Yeah. So they're going to dig up an old murder, and sure mm-hmm. enough, they're showing up a picture of Carmine Galani <laughs> in the ditch. Wow. And uh, they're like, you know, we really doesn't have anything to do with it, but we want to get this in the trial, right? So they've got Anthony, Bruno, and Delicato, who they had accused of it before. And Mm -hmm. after the murder, he was with the uh, Gambino family, and they're hitting high fives and stuff. So he's suspected of having something to do with it. And you remember they stole that car, that Mercury. Yeah. So they had it, and they dusted it for fingerprints and stuff. And the prints they lifted, they compared to him at the time in, in the late 70s. No match, right? Mm. So that's kind of a dead end, and that's it. Now, all of a sudden, they say, uh, well, we re-examined it. The car's gone, but they still have the (laughs) handle in an evidence bag, right? (laughs) And they go, well, you know, we realize that when you grab it, you really wouldn't grab it with your fingers. You'd grab it with your palm. Mm. So we did a palm match in 1984, and it's a dead match, (laughs) you know? So that's how they bring this thing in. Uh, And uh, I I think it's complete bunk. You know, like you're supposed to believe that the FBI in the 70s didn't realize the difference between a palm print and a fingerprint. Just slipped past us. They just, uh, I think they totally did a screw job there with the best of intentions just to get these guys done for good. And you could see it in the reaction because Bruno jumped out of his seat and like almost attacked the guy and was like, this is bullshit Mm -hmm. you know and uh, i don't think he'd have done that if it was evidence that he knew he had i think he was like i wasn't in that car man you can't (laughs) say i was so it was an interesting take but uh tied back to galani so uh tonight's uh episode is going to be albert anastasia all right let's get started umberto anastasio is born in ropea a village in southern italy in 1902 the exact date of his birthday is often disputed, but his tombstone reads September 26. He's one of 12 children, and his father, railroad worker, dies when he's 10. As teenagers, Umberto and his brothers Giuseppe and Antonio find work as deckhands on tramp steamers to earn money for their family. The work is extremely hard, and the money is scant. To survive in this world, one has to be extremely tough mentally and physically. General fellowship on board leaves a bit to be desired. Sail around the world, but when they get across the Atlantic, Umberto manages to jump ship in New York City, although reports are conflicting as to whether he was working on board at the time or merely a stowaway. Anastasio settles in Brooklyn in September of 1917. His brothers Giuseppe and Antonio eventually join him. Another brother, Salvatore, moves to New York and enters the priesthood. You know who got off really light is the dad with 12 kids. <laughs> like, he died as a railroad worker. He might have stepped in front of the train. <laughs> Umberto finds work as the longshoreman, moving cargo around at the Brooklyn docks. And it's here that he comes into daily contact with the crimes and criminals of the waterfront. The labor unions are run by the mafia, and they take substantial kickbacks from the income of the workers. Fortunately, the powers that be are happy to turn a blind eye to employees who pilfer the incoming cargo boxes. The docks saw frequent altercations between employees vying for stolen goods, but none as violent as the fight between Joe Torino and a 17-year-old Anastasia in 1920. 
Joe Torino has been establishing himself as a gang leader in the corrupt handling of newly received merchandise, but he doesn't appreciate Anastasia's pilfering, which he views to be unsanctioned. Torino and Anastasia reportedly go at it like a turn-of-the-century married couple. As often happens, accounts of this altercation vary from report to report, but the gist is that a verbal disagreement turns into a fistfight, the likes of which even these hardened longshoremen have not seen. By some accounts, Anastasia beats Torino with his bare fists, which are extremely large even for his intimidating size. By other accounts, the fists quickly escalate to weapons, as Umberto pulls a knife and stabs Joe to death. Regardless, the murder is committed in front of a group of bystanders. Witnesses, although not ones to intervene, are happy to testify to the murder and to the cold, dark look in the eyes of Torino's assailant. It was said that Anastasio was clearly not just acting in self-defense, he was enjoying the murder. Anastasio was quickly convicted of murder and sent to Sing Sing prison, where he awaits his execution by electric chair. He spends 18 months on death row, and far from repentant, Umberto is as violent and menacing as ever. He establishes himself as a terrifying force on the cell block, so much that he draws the attention of death house barber Jimmy the Shiv Di Stefano. Give me the Shiv. How do you get a name like the Shiv? <laughs> uh, Jimmy has more than an awesome nickname. He has important contacts on the outside, namely a young up-and-comer named Salvatore Luciano, who is looking to put together a criminal gang of his own. Jimmy convinces his friend Lucky that he needs someone like Anastasio, whose lust for violence and knowledge of the docks would come in useful during the various gang conflicts that are plaguing small gangs of New York at this time. Always the opportunist, Luciano uses his legal connections to arrange a retrial for Anastasia, getting him a temporary reprieve on some technicality. When the original witnesses to the Torino murder all end up murdered themselves, Anastasio is released for a lack of evidence. Incredibly, he has beaten the electric chair. The experience makes him an instantly famous person in the underworld and teaches him a lifelong lesson in dealing with law enforcement. If you have witnesses, get rid of them. <laughs> the 1920s, Anastasia leaves prison to find the world outside is changing. Prohibition is the law of the land, and the underworld is capitalizing on it in full force. Umberto decides to change his identity. He begins to use the anglicized name of Albert, and he also changes the final vowel of his surname from an O to an A. Why he changes it is unclear. Some suggest that he wants to protect the honor of his family, most who do not associate with criminal enterprises. More likely, however, it's merely a tactic to confuse police records upon further arrests, to shake the albatross of death row from his neck. Whatever the reason, Albert Anastasia is now entrenched in the American Mafia, surrounded by men like Charlie Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Louis Ludke Buckhalter, and Frank Costello. He quite literally owes Luciano his life. He heads back to the water shore, but this time he's running the illegal gambling circuits and regulating the loan sharking rackets. This is really a crazy time to be alive. If you think about the kind of things that we've already heard, it would never happen today, you know. This is before computer records and uh, really fingerprinting. And, you know, I mean, you can change your name from Smith to Smythe. And they're like, oh, you're lucky you're not Albert Smith or I'd be sending you to the pokey. <laughs> Changes one letter of his name and they... And that's it. Yeah. I like, yeah, I like the police show. That's not him. 
<laughs> it's also amazing to me that anything got done business-wise because it seems like everybody's stealing everything from these things. Yeah. And it's not just the Italians. The Italians have their gangs that are competing for the uh, the head crime family that's going to steal. But the Irish are there, and it's not a given yet that the Italians are running the docks. So the Irish are stealing too. And it's just like, if you're a store owner waiting for that ship, how the hell do you ever get your stuff? Just expect <laughs> to take a cut whenever it comes in. <laughs> I better order three. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, an underworld feud is burning in New York City. Its battles are fought in the streets of Brooklyn and of Manhattan's Lower East Side. Aside from the usual bootlegging conflicts, Salvatore D'Aquila, a Brooklyn-based boss of bosses, He's trying to maintain his stranglehold on the city. D'Aquila had been voted into the top role following the incarceration of previous Supreme Underworld Chief Giuseppe Morello in 1910. When Morello wins an early release from prison, the ultimate result is a guerrilla campaign against the D'Aquila faction by Morello loyalists. Anastasia appears to be involved in the feud as he is reportedly shot several times. Ambushed from a first floor window while driving on Sackett Street, his companion does not survive the assault. The account noted that Anastasia had been taken into custody a month earlier in connection with the murder of a man named Antonio Bassardo of Bensonhurst. Per usual, he was released for a lack of evidence. Bassardo had been connected with yet another murder and police assembled evidence of a vendetta feud that accounted for at least five deaths. From 1920 to 23, it's estimated that Albert Anastasia is associated with at least 30 assassinations and is not indicted in any of them. So he is a killer. Yeah. <laughs> and he is just getting started. 30. It's a, it's a tough number to get around, 30. They said that uh, when he got out, he just didn't give a damn. Like they'd just say, hey, see that guy? Go kill him. And he'd say, okay, we'll just go <laughs> kill the guy. Like just didn't care. Wow. Uh, Anastasia will not be around to continue the feud. In June of 1923, he's arrested for illegally carrying a revolver. He's convicted and sentenced to two years at Blackwell's Island Penitentiary. By the time he's released, D'Aquila is a boss, but in title only. The real power in New York City is now with the Morello faction, a Sicilian scourge in the underworld named Giuseppe Masseria, aka Joe the Boss. 1930 sees the beginning of the Castellamorese War. Joe the Boss Masseria carries on in the old boss of bosses method of total domination. He starts to influence matters in other crime families and in other regions. All we need to know at this point is that a Brooklyn group of mafiosi who originated in the Sicilian town of Castellamar del Golfo, just like Masseria, rose in rebellion under the leadership of Salvatore Maranzano. This begins one of the bloodiest periods in American mafia history. Luciano and his allies joined the Masseria outfit, but by 1931, Luciano sees the need to end this war and betrays his boss. He likely uses Albert Anastasia and Bugsy Siegel to assassinate him in a Coney Island restaurant. Not too much later, Luciano kills Maranzano as well, and hit that apparently does not involve Anastasia. This sets up Luciano as the head boss of the New York City outfit, and he helps establish a five-family power structure with a group of top bosses known as the Commission. Effectively, the old ways of the mob have given way to the more business-like tactics now known as organized crime.
Lucky Luciano now appoints Vincent Mangano as boss of what will be the Gambino crime family. Mangano makes Anastasia his underboss in 1931 and the head of his Brooklyn Rackets. He seems to play a double role as he also becomes an intermediary between the commission and an enforcement group known as Murder Incorporated. According to writer Thomas Hunt, the name of the enforcement group is taken from a book written by former prosecutor Burton Turkus. However, Turkus clearly intends to apply the nickname Murder Incorporated to the entire nationwide underworld syndicate. He did not intend to use it as a proper name for any particular enforcement group. Allegedly overseen by Louis Lefke Buckhalter, who is a good friend of Anastasia, the enforcement group seems to be set up like a homicidal law firm. The killers are paid on retainer, always on call, and receive a cash bonus upon completion of their assigned task. When a hit was ordered by the commission, a killer would be sent out to do the deed with an ice pick, a rope, a stiletto, or a firearm. The ice pick was a favorite weapon. As effective as a stiletto, the pick could be found virtually everywhere in the days before home refrigerators. It was quick and easy to use and couldn't be linked in any meaningful way to its wielder. The enforcement group was useful to the Mafia for two major reasons. First, by utilizing veteran assassins, many of whom came from the poor Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn. It increased exponentially the likelihood of a successful hit. These guys were literally professional killers. Second, law enforcement could never trace a connection between the murderer and the victim. Prosecutors would find the entire crime sequence baffling. Even if the killer were caught, there would be no apparent motive. Anastasia administered Murder Incorporated at the Mafia Commission level where non-Italians like the Jews were not permitted. Anastasia's leadership role in the group resulted in the nickname Lord High Executioner. That just rolls off the tongue, too. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's a good one. He had other nicknames like the Mad Hatter. <laughs> but, uh, that, that's a little bit uh, easier to say. Lord High Executioner. Yeah, you're like you're telling a story. And, and then me and the Lord High Executioner... <laughs> I liked what Joshua said. He, like, inspired the Mad Hatter, the Batman villain. He did. Yeah. He did. That's a pretty cool fact. Mm. It's Joshua the intern coming through. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. A little. Uh, this group is believed responsible for as many as a thousand murders and operated out of a candy store in Brooklyn. And then we got some names here. Happy Malone, uh, Frank Dasher, Abadondo, Bugsy Goldstein. Just some members of Murder Incorporated. Yeah, I'd be like, you know what? We already got a Bugsy. <laughs> <laughs> and they call Happy Happy because he was always scowling. So, was like... so uh, Brett, if I was pitching the uh, story for a screenplay, it, it starts off so good. I'm like, there's 12 guys and they're professional murderers and they just sit around. They're on call, right? And they ice picks and, and ropes and, and, they, and they set up base in a candy store. <laughs> like, wait, wait, back up. <laughs> Uh, they work for Willy Wonka. They were going to be the candy shop killers. <laughs> but then Murder Incorporated came around and uh, they got stuck with what that. If they drove around in an ice cream truck. Making <laughs> <laughs> stops along the way, making hits. They'd have got Joe the boss. See, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Joe, the boss getting somewhere. Running, Joe the boss comes running out fumbling with coins, a few dollars. <laughs> the end of your rifle is like just stuck up a waffle cone. <laughs> <laughs> And one for you. <laughs> Albert Anastasia enjoys a Teflon reputation in the early 30s. It seems that law enforcement can't make any charges stick to the mob enforcer. 
He's suspected of involvement in the kidnapping of Isidore Juf in 1932, but police can't gather enough evidence to convict. He's arrested twice in August of 1932, first on suspicion of committing a Brooklyn homicide with an ice pick, and then for consorting with known criminals. He's released both times. Can you imagine, like, uh, the intimacy of having to kill somebody with an ice pick? Gosh. Like, you got to be really close and really confident, you know, yeah. that he's not going to take that away and shove it up your ass. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> that makes you a killer. Yeah, that's, that that's makes the you... level that the yeah. dedication that really makes you stand out. Well, it's like I said last time when uh, Goodfellas, isn't that how Pesci killed Maury? With the ice pick to the back of the head. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, in the car. Really very personal. It's a very personal way to do it. And that was like the 70s, right? Uh, yeah. That was way past ice pick time. You had freezers. Yeah. yeah. So what the hell was he doing with that? Yeah. <laughs> Could have just shot him. Less messy, I guess. Uh, on August 2nd, 1933, it seems the Lord High Executioner's bold tactics may finally catch up with him when he brazenly murders a man named Joe Santora in full public view. Joe Santora works in the laundry business and when shaken down by Anastasia, decides to make a stand on principle. He refuses to pay a tribute to the mobster, which is essentially a protection fee against being assaulted or killed by the collector of the tribute. Enraged that a nobody like Santora would dare stand up to him, the Lord High Executioner decides to send a clear message that he's no one to be trifled with. Alongside his associate Tony Romeo, Anastasia approaches the laundry man on the street and promptly shoots him to death. A witness who manages to escape originally agrees to testify against the assassins in court. His courage is short-lived, however, and he changes his testimony from that's the guy to there's no way in hell that's the guy. Anastasia is acquitted on a lack of evidence. It's interesting, in the spring of 1942, almost 10 years later, Anastasia allegedly orders the murder of Romeo, who's been arrested and questioned in another killing. At the end of June, Romeo's body's discovered in Delaware, having been beaten and shot multiple times. So, uh, I don't think they were as close as, like, him and Buckholder. Yeah, no. No. In 1935, Anastasia is assigned one of his more interesting and complex hits, Dutch the Dutchman Schultz hires Albert to kill Thomas Dewey, a special prosecutor who's been hounding the Dutchman for tax evasion. Schultz figures that Dewey is everyone's problem, really, and that he's doing himself and the commission a service. Anastasia begins his stakeout, following Dewey to his Fifth Avenue apartment, learning his movements, and when the commission gets wind of his actions, the big bosses, led by Luciano, are certain that a hit on Dewey will bring too much heat on the entire organization. Anastasia gets the message and stands down. Schultz is not in agreement that he should be sacrificed for the good of the whole and tries to convince Anastasia to proceed as planned. Knowing upon which side his bread is buttered, Albert informs Luciano of the Dutchman's intentions. Murder Incorporated is directed to clean up the problem that is Dutch the Dutchman Schultz. The cool part of this is when Anastasia is uh, stalking Dewey and learning his movements, He's doing things like getting a baby carriage and walking by, you know, like a doting father and stuff. And uh, 
He's ever saying, look, it's just another perfect cinematic moment. You know, he dresses up like Mrs. Doubtfire, <laughs> and he's uh, cuckooing the baby in front, you know? I love that he gets out of the character. He's like, I could just spy and sit in my car. He's like, I'm going to get a costume, really get <laughs> exactly. into it, get clothes. <laughs> Plus, at this time, you know, there's a different standard of what a beautiful woman was. So yeah. Dewey could very well be looking out the window going, that's just a handsome woman down there. <laughs> <laughs> Sturdy, broad-shouldered woman out there. <laughs> While Anastasia is checking out Dewey, Dewey is checking out <laughs> Anastasia. Invite her up. <laughs> the hit is carried out October 23rd, 1935 at the Palace Chop House restaurant in Newark, New Jersey. Unfortunately for Luciano, his efforts to avoid the scrutiny of law enforcement backfire. With Schultz out of the picture, Dewey focuses his attention on Lucky, and the result is a December 1936 conviction for 62 counts of forced prostitution. It sends a sobering message to the underworld. Virtually no one is beyond the reach of the law. At this point, the law still hasn't managed to capture Albert Anastasia, but someone has. Elsa Barnetti, born in Ontario, Canada in 1914, enters the United States through Detroit in 1934 and makes her way to Brooklyn. Over the next two years, she puts Anastasia in her crosshairs, and the two are married in 1936. He's 36, and she is somewhere between 19 and 24. The couple have a son named Albert Jr. a year later, and eventually four children altogether. Apparently, Albert convinces her that he's a law-abiding citizen, that he owns a dress factory, and is a mattress salesman. <laughs> she undoubtedly believes that she owns several bridges throughout the New York area. This is kind of the opposite, though, of the uh, of the marriages we had last week with Galani, where we kind of snickered and stuff. Uh, by all accounts, he loves this woman. She has no idea who he is. And she says he, he was home every night by 9 o'clock. He didn't drink. You know, just, just a great husband and father. Yeah. And I, I believe it was true. I, how can you flip the switch from being Murder Incorporated? I'll kill anybody <laughs> you point to. Then you go home, and it, it seems impossible. Got to be a sociopath. It's the only way. You hear a lot of about a, a lot of that about certain gangsters that they would just go home, like like murdering and being a gangster was a nine to five. Yeah, and it's they'd extreme come home compartmentalization. And, you know? Yeah, yeah. But they've got to have that good person in them, right? Or they mm-hmm. couldn't play that role or have any interest in playing yeah. that role. Yeah. This was the days before TV, right? So you didn't have to worry about that. Certain people had TVs, not but good. not everybody. Not yeah. Uh, things have gone well for Murder Incorporated. But if we've learned anything throughout the history of organized crime, it's that all good things must come to an end. The end comes in 1939 with the murder of Peter Panto, a pivotal figure in the fight against the corruption of organized labor. Panto set out to expose the mafia ties that preyed on the rank-and-file dock workers and threatened the stranglehold that Anastasia and company held on this racket. Legend has it that on July 14th, Anastasia somehow lured Panto out of his home and into his limousine and strangled him to death with his bare hands. His body was buried in a New Jersey lime pit. Just a couple quick things about Panto. First of all, when you hear the name Peter Panto, you think of a guy running around in green tights (laughs) who never wants to grow up, but that's not the case. He's actually a tough guy on the docks, and he uh, despises the corruption in the mafia. He wants to clean it up, and he actually gets people on his side, the common guy, and uh, to the point that... Even though Anastasia and these guys hate him, they have to work with him because he's got that much pull 
on the docks until finally Anastasia just can't take it anymore, which... Uh, he tried. Yeah, it probably was like 10 <laughs> minutes, you know, but that's the way it went down. Law enforcement is now focused like a laser beam on Murder Incorporated, and particularly on a hitman named Abe Kid Twist Rellis. When Rellis is charged with murder, he decides to try and dodge the electric chair. He seems like a proverbial canary, starting with the murder of Panto and going as far as leading them to the body. The result is the jailing and execution of several mafia hitmen. Most notably targeted is the big boss Louis Lepke Buckhalter, who's a close friend of Anastasia. And the thing about Kid Twist is, firstly, he gets his nickname from the ice pick. His favorite way to kill someone, just grab him by the head, he'd shove just it in their it. ear and twist it, and they, uh, I guess they die of a cerebral hemorrhage. But oh, as, as badass as he was, as soon as he gets caught, he does not want to fry in the electric chair, even if everybody else he knows has to fry in the electric chair. He starts talking like nobody's talked, and uh, they can't shut him up. He's talking about the murders he committed, the murders, uh, all about Murder Incorporated. He blows the lid off it. He's telling them so many things in such graphic detail that the stenographers are getting sick to their stomachs, and they had to use 11 of them on shifts because they couldn't take it anymore. He's talking about murders they didn't even know happened. They weren't even (laughs) looking for the murders. And then when he takes them to the body of Panto, they dig that thing up, and the lime rock is really decomposed. And it's just a grisly, nasty mess. So I think, like, it blew the lid and just changed the way everybody was looking at these guys. And they, as bad as the cops knew it was, it ended up being a hundred times worse than they knew it was. Do anything to avoid the chair. Uh, When the trouble first circles around Buckhalter, the Lord High Executioner figures to fix things in the usual way. He begins to systematically eliminate all of the witnesses involved in the investigation. In all, about a dozen murders were executed at his command, but to no avail. The heat on Buckhalter only intensified. With no other recourse, Anastasia put his partner into hiding. A worldwide search begins, and reports of his whereabouts come from the four corners of the earth. In reality, Buckhalter never leaves Brooklyn. Donning a new mustache and a few extra pounds, he's hiding in plain sight. Just like Christian Bale, bro. Just, yeah. just transforms. He's got one of those glasses with the big nose and the mustache. And he just goes out and buys the paper, sees a movie, whatever he wants. Search goes on for years. And eventually the commission decides enough is enough. Buckhalter is bringing too much heat on the organization and must be sacrificed. They approach Anastasia with a plan. Albert is to reach out to his friend, explaining that a deal has been reached with the FBI. Buckhalter is to turn himself into the authorities and will receive only a minor consequence of up to five years in prison. Of course, there is no deal, as Ludke is wanted for numerous counts of murder. Anastasia is forced to choose between his friend and the commission. He chooses the commission. Buckhalter turns himself in and finds himself convicted and sentenced to death. He is the first major underworld figure to sit in the electric chair. The betrayal weighs heavily on Albert, and his respect for the commission is waning. Albert actually uh, turns him in really publicly, and they have a like a famous DJ is facilitating this, like broadcasting, like 
Mr. Buckholder, go to the corner of, and Hoover picks him up in a limousine and stuff. Like, this is a spectacle, you know? And uh, you got to wonder, at what point does Buckholder finally realize that there's no deal? You know, he gets in. There's a deal, right? They're like, oh, yeah, there's a deal, there's a deal, you know. And then, like, he's in jail, and they're like, yeah, we're going to go through the, the, the mocking of a trial. But, you know, we got we got a deal here. You're going to be fine, you know. And, well, we got to at least put you in the chair, <laughs> you know. <laughs> got to turn it on for a couple seconds. So, yeah. It's not until they're, like, wrapping the tape around his head so his eyes don't pop out of his skull. He's like, wait wait a minute, guys. This is a <laughs> simulation. <laughs> But yeah, this does uh, destroys Albert, and I think this is like in the in the movie Gangster. This is when things start to change. You know, he's not in love with the commission anymore. He's because everybody's all about yeah. It's you got to put the organization ahead of yourself. And uh, Luciano was very clear about this. He said, "You send your mother to the chair before you inconvenience the commission. That's just the way it is." And everybody nods their head until it's you. <laughs> it's easy to agree to that until it gets to that point. I thought we were talking about them. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, as soon as you get in, in your mind that way and you start causing problems for the commission, that's how most of them get killed. They either try to, like Galani, of trying to grab too much and take too much. Whenever you inconvenience the commission is when you usually kind of die. A lesson that they incredibly never seem to learn. No, and never. If, if Anastasia has his ear to the railroad tracks right now, he would hear the train coming. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that's where his head is. Relis is also pointing his little rat finger at Albert himself for the killing of Panto and to the assassination of a Teamster Union official named Morris Diamond, who was a primary witness in a case against Buckhalter. Brooklyn District Attorney William O'Dwyer finally has a credible witness to send the high executioner to the electric chair. And he always keeps Relis in witness protection under the watchful eyes of several armed guards. It's to no avail. Abe Relis is found dead, either having jumped or been pushed from his five-story window. The guards all report to have been asleep at the time, stationed outside of his door. It was later mused that Relis was the canary that could sing, but could not fly. Anastasia dodges another law enforcement conviction, but the damage to Murder Incorporated has been done, and the group is officially disbanded. But what happens next is a classic case of truth being so much stranger than fiction. America enters World War II and Albert Anastasia enlists in the armed forces. His experience on the waterfront docks is apparently a welcome asset to the cause. He's made a technical sergeant and becomes an official instructor of military longshoremen. Additionally, due to a special act of Congress, which granted a speedy naturalization to aliens serving in the American armed forces, he becomes a U.S. citizen. In 1943, now an official citizen, Anastasia ages out of the military and is discharged at the age of 43. He could potentially reinvent himself as an upstanding member of society. Of course, he does not. Over the next couple years, Albert Anastasia builds his influence over the New York Longshoremen's Union, most notably using his Brooklyn allies to end a strike that is crippling the waterfront economy for the better part of October. He moves into a prestigious neighborhood in Fort Lee, New Jersey. He's a neighbor of fellow mobster Joe Adonis. He builds a new 35-room, 5-bathroom house 
valued at more than $75,000, approximately $719,143.66 in today's economy. But that's still like seven rooms have to share a bathroom. <laughs> it could get pretty tight there. Come on, you couldn't get 10 bathrooms? Come on now. Uh, by 1948, this proves to be a costly mistake as it draws the attention of the government and puts him on the defense for tax evasion. While he does report a few legit jobs, among them a stint in the cheese business, none of them could possibly justify such a lavish purchase. Anastasia paid $2,788 in taxes on a reported income of 18769 The government calculated that he must be topping fifty grand and owed them another fourteen grand in tax revenue. This investigation will go on for years. Maybe he had like a 300-year mortgage. Did they ever think of that? <laughs> yeah, reported income of 18000 Home is valued at seventy-five. <laughs> and, and Anastasia's got his big meat chopper hands around his account, and he's like, did you tell him about the cheese business? <laughs> the 50s are not great for the public image of Anastasia. He's repeatedly the target of state and local racketeering investigations. He is routinely named in the newspapers as a mafia hitman, a drug smuggler, and a corrupt labor union thug. He's in danger of becoming a thorn in the side of commission members who don't like media attention. A thorn in the other side of the commission is Anastasia's friend, Willie Moretti, who is rumored to be suffering from syphilis, which is affecting his judgment. Specifically, Moretti is starting to run his mouth, and he'll apparently talk about anything to anyone. In a world where mobsters are frequently testifying on national television, he's become a major liability. Further, in 1951, Moretti and Anastasia are assigned to handle a payoff, rumored to be 200 grand, to an incarcerated bookmaker, buying his silence. When the payoff is made, there is a substantial amount of money missing. Anastasia convinces the commission that he has nothing to do with the missing money. The commission decides to give him a pass this time. Willie Moretti is not as lucky, and on the morning of Thursday, October 4th, 1951, at a restaurant called Joe's Elbow Room in Cliffside Park, New Jersey, he shot four times in the head and face on the orders of Vito Genovese. Some sources suggest that it's a mercy killing, and that Anastasia is forced to take a role in setting up the murder of his old friend. This is done by Anastasia reportedly requesting the use of Moretti's driver and bodyguard for the day. God love Moretti. The, just the thought of a gangster that's, you know, suffering a syphilis and just talking shit. <laughs> it's too it's too bizarre to, you know, like, you just see him in a restaurant. You're like, hey, Moretti. He goes, hey, man, hey, you know that guy? Remember that guy we killed? We buried him over in the lime, the lime pits. You remember? How could I forget? <laughs> He's just, you're just, whoa, whoa, Moretti, Moretti. <laughs> People are turning. Yes. And then with the money, you know, he's like, hey, there's a little money. Yeah, I took it. (laughs) Boy, the missing money. No, I stole that. I took that. (laughs) The money I stole. (laughs) You know about that. But I told you. The use for mercy killing, um, being shot four times in the head and face, (laughs) is an interesting use of the term. Mercy. Anastasia's close associations with Charlie Luciano and Frank Costello are keeping him afloat. But he has suffered a proverbial black eye and can ill afford another. With all of his troubles and the dissolution of Murder Incorporated, the Lord High Executioner finds himself back as an underboss to Vincent Mangano, who's the boss of what would later be the Gambino family. Mangano's relationship to Anastasia is strained. 
The boss is still unhappy with the Moretti situation, but also resents the way Costello and Luciano deal with Anastasia. They consider him to be at their disposal, with no regard of Mangano's approval. Anastasia, for his part, is resentful being demoted to underboss, feeling that he should be promoted instead of wearing this embarrassment. Inevitably, Mangano sends strong signals to Albert that it is time to retire or face the consequences. Albert Anastasia briefly considers his options, and in the end, decides the disposal of his boss is the best course of action. They didn't really do Mangano any favors, you know, it'd be like your boss sets up Jeffrey Dahmer as your secretary, you know, he goes, hey, he's disgruntled, so we're going to give him to you. And he just stares at you all day, like, licking his pencil. Yeah. You know? Mangano's body is never recovered, but his brother Philip is found in a Brooklyn swamp. Reports indicate he was shot twice in the face and once in the neck. Oh, another mercy killing. <laughs> this infuriates the commission, whose very existence is to prevent things like this from happening. They confront Anastasia, and he never admits killing the Manganos, but he does offer that the two men have been threatening to kill him. Technically, the pretense of self-defense would make his actions permissible. Anastasia assumes the top spot in the Mangano organization and is back in a boss's chair once again. I think the next shot was probably just he missed. You yeah. probably even have to apologize for that. You know? <laughs> I, 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 that my bad. I just shoot him twice in the head. With his new position and his Brooklyn waterfront influence, Albert is truly back on top. He has interests in the garment workers' unions, a fiercely guarded industry in the underworld, and his brother Tough Tony is now a longshoreman union official, giving Albert increasing influence with the Manhattan dock workers. He's also earned a spot on the commission and shows himself to be a strong supporter of Frank Costello and Tommy Lucchese. He counterbalances the power of New York mafiosi like Joe Bonanno and Joe Profaci. Unfortunately, Anastasia, rather than keeping a low profile, seems to be getting more volatile. He breaks another commission rule by killing a civilian. In 1952, a clothing store salesman named Arnold Schuster spots a wanted bank robber with mafia connections named Willie Sutton in a colossal lapse of judgment. Schuster follows Sutton home from the subway and alerts police to his location. Compounding his poor judgment, Schuster agrees to a television interview detailing his actions. This is witnessed by Albert Anastasia, sitting outraged in his New Jersey mansion. He orders the killing of Arnold, who is shot once in the groin and once in each eye. It is a mafia message for squealers. Schuster is dead within a month of his interview. In hindsight, Anastasia realizes his mistake, but the damage has already been done. I got I got mixed feelings about Schuster. You know, for one thing, I, I hate a rat. I really do. Yeah. I, I teach my kids the worst thing you can be is a rat. You know, always tattling <laughs> and stuff. But he didn't even mess with the mob. Uh, Willie Sutton doesn't mean much to us anymore, but he was famous at the time. He would rob banks. And he's the guy that you've heard the quote, uh, they go, why do you rob banks? He goes, that's where the money is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, he never killed anybody. He was an independent operator. He, uh, he was a, like a Robin Hood, only he kept all the money. Yeah. You know? So he'd been arrested or incarcerated three times. He'd escaped. You know, so he was just kind of a folk hero and stuff. And, uh, you know, not necessarily the guy you want to see go down. No. You know, but he certainly wasn't connected. He had no attachment to Anastasia whatsoever. He's just at home watching TV and he mm -hmm. makes this flippant hit on the guy's life. And the guy's dead yeah. within, you know, a very short time. 
And uh, I've seen interviews with this uh, Schuster guy, just a decent huckleberry of a guy. He's Arnold. a clothing salesman, you know. And they're like, <laughs> weren't you scared to turn him? He goes, well, you know, I didn't think about fear at the time. But he goes, when I got home, I said, oh, God, what have I done? I hope it's going to be a young. Yeah. What have you done? <laughs> and then I compound it by getting on national television. Yeah. And, he, and he got his little 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. And the mayor's like, you see, you see here, he's shaking his hand. And, yeah. you know, and he had his, it, it turns out to be really the high point in his life. Because yeah. uh, it, it's pretty sour from there. Well, and you can see the thing where he gets a shot of you. Google it. And uh, it looks like they shot him in the head. Right? The groin shots must have come later because you don't see the blood smear where why, his groin is. Why the groin? Well, I don't know. But... Uh, I'm sure there's a reason. I think, yeah, it was a specific message for one in each eye and one in the groin. Yeah, you know how Sicilians are. It means something. He's lucky there's not a dog head on his lap. Yeah, the kiss of death, all that. They love their theatrical signs of death. But the big pool of blood is, you know, like six feet away. And you can see it looks like he flapped around like a fish and kind of dragged his head over and stuff. So... And then, oh, he's probably kicking his feet, even with the shot in the head. Yeah. And then they shot him in the nuts. You uh, know, it's just, yeah, don't don't call the cops. Just go home. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't see nobody on the subway. Those, those That's trials the are, like, public, too. So when all those jurors yeah. end up dead, it's not like it's unknown. They know that people are dying. They're trying to testify. And maybe, a lot, like it says, a lapse of judgment. But to be like, yeah, it's so like followed him home and reported to the cops. So. Yeah, especially like a strange thing you had no connection to. Like I could see if it was like my neighbor's daughter that got killed in a crossfire or something. You're like, I don't care, man. You know, I owe it to the family. You know, yeah. He owed nobody anything. Yeah. You know, and he was just like, well, I got nothing going on tonight. I might as well follow <laughs> this man to his home. And we're probably not the best moral conscience of society right now. We're just saying, <laughs> we just want you to get home safe. That's all we yeah. want. The Mad Hatter's tax problems continue to dog him. One of his biggest headaches is a plumber named Charles Ferry, who testifies that he's done over $8,000 in services, receiving at least 1000 from Anastasia himself. Another problem is his bodyguard, Vincent Mockery, who knows a great deal about the financial details of his boss and seems pretty willing to testify. This drags out until 1954, when the body of Mockery is found in the trunk of his car somewhere in the Bronx. This results in a mistrial, and the government is forced to take another shot at it in 1955. Unfortunately, the plumber comes up missing. <laughs> Reportedly living in Miami, Charles Ferry's property was abandoned. Reports state that while there was no body at the residence, there was one hell of a lot of blood spattered around. Oddly, Anastasia's lawyer approaches the auditors and informs them he's willing to plead guilty after all. It's a very unexpected move, as another mistrial seems likely but he's sentenced to one year in federal prison at Milan, Michigan, and pays $20,000 in a fine. This is a weird little situation where he turns himself in for seemingly no reason, and the only thing I can think of is he's misstepped quite a few times, and maybe it's just in his best interest to, to lay low and get out of sight for a while. And I, I really think maybe he's like, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe you're in the pokey is not the worst thing that could happen to me right now. <laughs> It's almost like an apology to the commission. It says, I'll take myself out of the picture for however long, just a year. Cool off, yeah. And the commission's thinking maybe forever. Yeah. Like maybe you just retire. Maybe he dies in prison. Who knows? But he's he's thinking, eh, maybe this will blow over. Yeah. You know? oh, I could still be the boss of bosses, right? Not likely. Not likely. 
While he's in jail, the US government tries on several occasions to revoke his citizenship, claiming that he falsified information on his request forms. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past him. He's a he's a patriot, damn it. <laughs> he, he would never. <laughs> After a considerable back and forth, Anastasia wins the court battle. The system is broken. <laughs> wins. He wins the court battle. That must have been the worst to lose to him. He's finally released from prison in 1956, and as often happens to the wise guys that do a stretch, he finds himself in a world that has changed. His allies like Luciano and Lepke are long gone. The only person still in his corner is his old associate Frank Costello, and there are power moves being planned that will turn the tide of everything. The mob boss Vito Genovese is looking to remove Costello with the covert backing of Carlo Gambino, Anastasia's underboss. For Anastasia, the hits keep coming. It is discovered by the commission that his crime family has been selling membership. The rules of joining a family were set up to keep out weak members and to prevent infiltration of law enforcement. Anastasia's underboss, Frank Scalise, decided it was more important to line his pockets than to protect the organization. Anastasia seeks permission from an incarcerated Luciano to execute Scalise, trying to show that he can fix the problem as well as follow proper channels. It's too little too late, though, and his future is looking worse and worse. It's 1957 and the hit on Frank Costello is underway. The would-be assassin Vincent Giganti, a young up-and-comer eager to make a name for himself, is assigned the task. The hit is to take place in the lobby of his Manhattan apartment as he is getting on the elevator. The window of opportunity is tight and he must move quickly or lose his target behind the closing doors of the elevator. Perhaps to slow him down or just out of brazen overconfidence, Giganti shouts, Frank Costello, this is for you! Frank doesn't like the sound of that, and instinctively dodges to the side. Giganti fires a bullet that merely grazes Costello's head and then makes a hasty exit. He's unaware that Costello has survived the attack. In the end, it doesn't seem to matter. Frank Costello may not be dead, but he sees the writing on the wall and announces his retirement. His family is turned over to Genovese. Anastasia is virtually without friends and weakened to the point of extreme vulnerability. This doesn't stop him from condemning the attempted hit on Costello, however. Anastasia is reported to have vaguely sworn revenge on whoever carried it out. You know, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is close only counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and shooting at Frank Costello. Because it's safe to say effect. But again, Brett, if I was pitching a movie, and I'm like, <laughs> and then he yells, this is for you! You're like, why, why would he do that? <laughs> like, you know, you're watching a movie like that, you're like, come on, he's not going to yell yeah. his name no. right before he shoots him in the back of the head. <laughs> you know? It's like someone's going to have a, a good one-liner before they kill him. <laughs> yeah. Knock, knock! Like in The Departed, when... You've seen The Departed, right? Yeah. When Leo gets shot in the elevator, yeah. that scene would have been ruined if that guy yelled, hey, Billy! He shot him. This know. is for you. <laughs> it's also though a brilliant commercial for Murder Incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, maybe we're back because <laughs> this is what happens when you don't hire a, a killer professional. Yeah, it's like a slam political ad. <laughs> Do you want a proper assassination of your target? <laughs> Hit up murdering. <laughs> Look, if you want to graze his forehead, call the other guy. <laughs> If you want it done the right way, you want if you six want six feet under, if you want twenty-seven ice picks between his ribs, <laughs> then you call us. Whether acutely aware or completely oblivious to his increasingly dire situation, Anastasia looks to fortify his power within the underworld. It's reported that Anastasia meets with Cuban government representatives 
suggesting that he's moving into the Havana gambling rackets. This seems to be an aggressive mood toward Tampa boss Santo Traficante and Meyer Lansky, who was an old ally of Anastasia. Lansky warns his old friend that this is a mistake, and it's likely that Albert met with Traficante shortly before his demise, as the latter was briefly booked into a hotel just before one of the most famous days in gangland history. The whole affair may have been an attempt to rebolster his influence, but it only leaves Anastasia completely out in the cold. The days are numbered for the Lord High Executioner. Vito Genovese has long been building a case against Albert Anastasia, painting him as an out-of-control liability. Eh, it's, yeah, it's accurate. He's been aided by Carlo Gambino, to whom he has promised Anastasia's territory. He's been aided mostly by Anastasia himself, who can't stop stepping in it. The Havana inquiries are the last straw. Genovese goes to the commission for permission to take out Anastasia. Bonanno and his allies are no fans of Genovese, but they recognize an opportunity to get rid of an old foe. Carlo Gambino will move into the Lord High Executioner's spot as boss of the family. They give the nod. Alright, so this story we're going to read about the hit is an adaptation from an article originally published by the New York Daily News on October 26, 1957. It was written by Anthony Marino and Sidney Klein. It is late morning on October 25th, 1957, at 10.18am. Albert Anastasia is at the Park Sheraton Hotel. The hotel is no stranger to gun violence, having been the scene of mobster Arnold Rothstein's demise in 1928. It's also the place that Anastasia prefers to get a trim and a shave. After a lifetime of studying his victim's habits and searching for vulnerabilities, it seems he has developed a predictable routine of his own. His bodyguard at the time is a man named Anthony Coppola, and there seems to be some discrepancy as to where he is. By some accounts, he is parking the car. In others, he is across the street eating breakfast. Still in others, he was not present at all. It seems unlikely that Anastasia would leave himself unprotected, but as he walks into Grasso's barber shop, Coppola is not standing guard. Albert greets Grasso and his favorite barber and sits down in a chair from which he can look out the window onto 55th Street and 7th Avenue. He orders a shave and a haircut. His gray hat, blue topcoat, and the jacket of his brown suit hangs nearby. Also in the shop are two other customers, five barbers, including the boss, a manicurist, a brusher and two boot blacks. While the Lord High Executioner lies back and the fourth of twelve chairs lined up in the shop, the barber covers his face with hot towels. Despite his vulnerability in the underworld, Albert is completely relaxed. His eyes are closed and his breath is easy beneath the warm comfort of the white face cloths that wrap his head. In a nearby world far less serene, two men are approaching virtually undetected. The barber shop has two entrances. One is from a corridor off the 55th Street side of the hotel and is connected to the shop by a small foyer. The other entrance is from the hotel lobby. The gunmen open the door from the lobby, walk around a partition which screens the shop's chairs from the entrance, and head directly to chair number four. They're at Anastasia's back. The notorious killer has made a classic mistake by leaving his back to a door. One gunman is about five foot eight, the other about five foot five. Both wear fedoras. Both don dark aviator-type sunglasses. One man strides to the left of Anastasia and pushes aside the barber with the muzzle of his gun. 
The other killer moves to Anastasia's right. Both begin shooting. Anastasia, relaxed and reclined, is suddenly in a hail of gunfire. His quiet meditation severed by the stinging penetration of hot lead into his arms and chest. The assassins fire repeatedly into his chair. He scarcely has time to comprehend what is happening, but his adrenaline and his animal instincts kick in. He manages to uncover his face and sees the shapes of his attackers. Even in this moment of shock and surprise, Anastasia knows he must act and act fast. He lunges like a wounded bear at his assailants. Unfortunately, in his haste and confusion, Anastasia attacks the reflection of his assailants in the large barber mirror. Mildly bemused and pleasantly surprised, the killers continue their assault. He raises his left hand protectively. Two slugs rip through it, the gun so close that it leaves powder burns on his palm. The third bullet tears into his hip. Still encumbered by the hot towels, Anastasia stumbles toward chair number three. The fourth bullet crashes in the back of his head. The fifth slug hits his back. Anastasia falls dead on his back between chairs two and three. The killers, satisfied that their job is done, walk rapidly from the barber shop through the lobby door and vanish. In the shop, there are varied reactions. Customers flee. The manicurist screams and slumps into a chair. Some of the barbers stand stock still, dazed. One runs to call the cops. The manager of the hotel's florist shop, which adjoins Grosso's establishment, says he heard about six shots as he walked from the mermaid room nearby and saw several men running from the barbershop. Some were running out the 7th Avenue entrance, and some were running out the 55th Street entrance. He said, I went into the barbershop and looked at the body on the floor. It was Albert Anastasia. I knew him because I used to serve him when I worked in a flower shop in my Brooklyn neighborhood. I called police. I had a little trouble getting the operator to hurry the call. I was trying to get police headquarters directly. It seemed to be three flurries of shots. It sounded like one shot, then a pause, then two or three shots, another pause, and then two or three more shots. Joseph March owns the luggage shop in an entrance off the corridor, which gives access to the barbershop. He is just coming into the hotel when he sees several men fleeing, apparently the customers. One slipped and fell on his back on the floor and yelled, They're going crazy in there! They're shooting! March recalls. Virginia Nelson, red-haired owner of the Red-Headed Woman, a dress shop in the hotel, says she heard shots and that a barber came running into her establishment to report the shooting. She phoned police. Cops, detectives, aides of the district attorney, and newsmen converge on the hotel within minutes and at the sight of police cars. Dr. Robert Sestari of St. Clair's Hospital is the first physician on the scene, but can do no more than pronounce the obvious. Anastasia is dead. Hotel employees place screens around the body and cover it with barber sheets. A call is put in for the chief medical examiner. Efforts are made to find Anastasia's brother, Tough Tony. When word of the shooting reached the news, the city desk assigns a reporter in Brooklyn to contact Tony. He breaks the news of Albert's assassination telephone drops with a thump. Tony arrives at the hotel at 11.17 a.m. He goes to his brother's body, peers at his face, throws himself on the floor, embraces and kisses his brother, and weeps uncontrollably. A superficial examination of the body is made, and it is removed to Bellevue Hospital Morgue for an autopsy, which is performed later in the day. It's determined that the death resulted either from the bullet in the back or the bullet to the head. In the late afternoon, body is identified officially in the morgue by Anastasia's son. The son lists his father's occupation as dress manufacturer and reports the family last saw him alive at 7 a.m. Although the news of his murder makes the national headlines, the funeral of Albert Anastasia is of very little fanfare. 
His family felt it inappropriate to have a Catholic Mass, and he cannot be buried in a Catholic cemetery. A wake is held at a funeral home in Brooklyn, and it is poorly attended. His wife and son are present. A grief-stricken Elsa is virtually held up by their son, Albert Jr. Elsa soon goes back to Canada and leaves her memories of New York City behind her. Albert's brother, Tough Tony, fares a little better, remaining on the waterfront until a heart attack takes him in 1963. The identities of the assassins is still technically unknown. However, it is a popular theory that the hit was handled by mobster Crazy Joe Gallo and his brothers, presumably hired directly or indirectly by Genovese. Gallo seems to admit this later in life. When asked if he and his brothers were responsible, he replies, Call us the Barbershop Quintet. This concludes the legend of Albert Anastasia. Great story. Yeah, hell of a story. Jeez. One of the things about a, a great gangster story, though, is that he has to get killed in the end. You know, if he just dies, like, of a heart attack on the wharf, is he, is he really got the full package? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the story you want to hear. He went out fighting. He, he did, you yeah. know, and, uh, you know, there might have been a little strategy to that. There's a common thing that he mistook the people in the mirror as, as them and stuff. But what if it was just like a, a hastily thought out plan where he's like, okay, the guys in the reflection don't have the guns. That's the real guy. So I'll get the guys in the reflection, yeah. take them down, <laughs> thereby leaving my reflection to take the guys with the guns. <laughs> and it's, it's a great idea that just didn't pan out. You know, it was yeah. just, he didn't have time to work out all the details. But uh, it was interesting, Tough Tony. Yeah, that was a touching scene, you know, when he was uh, yeah. not not Tough Tony. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the wife, she shows up, and she, that poor lady had no idea that the uh, dress business was so competitive. Yeah, no. You know, so this is really a shock to her and her kid. It's <laughs> if you didn't like, like the dress, you could have gotten a refund. <laughs> as far as the assassins, you know, at the timeline, where's Glanny? Yeah. You know, this is his What's kind of thing. I'm not, I'd have to look back and see if he's in Canada. 1957? The, the description fits. Of course, oh, the description yeah. fits every Italian yeah. hitman on five, the New York Five, five. five. Yeah. He might be in Canada. Right. Running the heroin. Uh, yeah, most of the guys, uh, most of the guys that were in Murder Incorporated went to the chair. Only like one or two of them escaped it. You know, so all those guys are dead and stuff. But uh, it shows you how a guy like Galani could come up because there's this big vacuum yeah. left by uh, Anastasia Murder Incorporated. And I think at this time, there's this uh, optimism that like maybe the ways of doing things the old way are gone and it's going to be more like a business now. And of course, that, that doesn't pan out. You know, But I think with the death of Anastasia, hope was uh, springing anew. You know, yeah. Maybe things are going to be different now you know the thing about this it's not that long ago no it's yeah. not like 60 years ago it's not that long ago yeah like yeah. my father will remember this stuff like it was yesterday yeah you know and he's like oh yeah 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 this is the way it was you know it's just i don't think we have any parallel to that like even we have what el chapo yeah but he so, wasn't a daily fixture in our lives no. you know what i mean like i heard about him yeah. when he got arrested yeah like, who's the biggest mobster nowadays i don't even know who is he? Yeah. Not in yeah the U.S. I mean, you talked about during one of the breaks about wanting to see a real authentic Yakuza movie. That's like the only country I can think of where the mob is still as prevalent as ever. Yeah. Because like you said, who's the big guy in the U.S. now? I couldn't name. I don't know. You never hear 
anything anymore. It's Not so since John Gotti yeah. and Sammy it's, the yeah. Bull, I think, have you heard, like, just as a daily fixture where everybody knows. The, the typical, like, mobster, mafioso. Gotti is probably the last guy. Right. Right. But they're so far underground now. Don't kid yourself into thinking they're not around. Yeah. They're but, around. You know, they're just not going out to their restaurant. You're seeing them every day in the street. And, yeah. and they're not going to the 100-band party we'll cover in, a, in an upcoming episode yeah. where they all get, you know, sandbagged at once and stuff. They don't live in 35-room houses. Right. And I, and I think even with uh, that Fear City, they took pictures of them. They all met together. You had Tony Ducks, Castellano, all those guys. They met. And that the feds took pictures of them, and that's how they kind of mm-hmm. tied them all together because they were all in one house, and they walked out beautifully, like with their families individually. Like they get into the car, then the Gambinos get into the yeah. car, then the Genovese get into the car. It's hard to refute that evidence. <laughs> it was, it, yeah, it was just on a silver platter. You know? So uh, if you get a chance, check out uh, Fear City on Netflix. It's a, it's yeah. a good show. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, Partners in Crime, thanks for listening. We're going to sign out, I guess, right? Yeah. we are got nothing else. Joshua, you got anything else to say? Nope. All right. Excellent. (laughs) Have a good night. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin MacLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat. <laughs>